Hey, good morning. It's great to be here. I greatly respect your pastor and your church, and it really, truly was an honor to be invited from Tallahassee, Florida. I had to have the chance to speak to your men at the conference this weekend, and then to stay for Sunday morning. Also, thank you, Matt, for giving me Time Change Sunday. I uh, really appreciate that. Uh, you, uh, maybe you've heard it before. If you come uh, to the worship gathering, the corporate worship, on a regular Sunday, you love the church. But if you come on Time Change Sunday, you love God. So great job. <laughs> Uh, to be here with all the God lovers. I wanna talk to you this morning about what I believe is our mission field, the biggest mission field and most underrated mission field in America. It took me a while to come to grips with it because I had some insecurity going back home to Tallahassee, Florida, where I live only 10 miles from the Georgia line where I grew up, my family, and I felt like I was sort of taking the easy way out. Like my friends going to California and going to New England and going overseas, and we definitely need those people and praise God for them. They're the ones doing the real work. I was going to the land of a Chick-fil-A and a church on every single corner. And I had what I call a little bit of missional insecurity. You know, missional insecurity is like at spring break when your friend's going to work at an orphanage in Haiti and you're going to 30A. You know, and you're kind of like, I'll pray for you. I'll probably forget to, but I'll try. And that's kind of how I felt because my neighbor in seminary was going to Northern California to plant a church. So I felt like he was the real missionary and I was the one kind of selling out, kind of doing the comfort thing, taking the easy route. And I was talking to him about it and told him how much I admired him. And he goes, oh, knock it off. I said, what? He said, where I'm going in Northern California is easier than where you're going. Now, I think everywhere is hard because the enemy is everywhere, and it's definitely different in context, but I just kind of looked at him. I said, what are you talking about? He said, where I'm going in Northern California, there's no confusion over who's a Christian and who's not. Either you follow Jesus or you don't. Where you're going, everyone thinks they're fine, and everyone thinks they're a Christian. It's almost like you have to get someone lost in order to get them saved, now, I do not believe for a moment that I'm a ju the judge on who is a Christian and who's not, nor do I want to be. You aren't either, but the scriptures are. And I find it fascinating in Matthew chapter 7, what we'll start today, that Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, he just got finished talking about the wide and narrow roads, the wide gate and the narrow gate. There's a wide road, a wide, big, huge gate that leads to death that many, he says, are on. And there's a narrow gate, a narrow road that leads to life, that leads to salvation that comes through Jesus, and few find it. Pretty clear there. Many people on the big wide road that leads to death have not, have not been forgiven for their sins. They're gonna stand before God based on their own merit, their own goodness. They'll be punished for the sins they've committed against God. And there's a narrow road that few people find, sadly and unfortunately, that goes through Jesus Christ that appeals to Christ for their salvation. They know their need for forgiveness and therefore they've put their hope in Jesus rather than themselves or in this world. And he says, few find it. But after that, Jesus doesn't go in. This is strange to me at first. He doesn't go into some rant about atheism or agnosticism. He doesn't talk about all the other religions of the world. He doesn't talk about the pagan practices that are taking place in the temples in the first century. Instead, he talks about false teaching for a moment, and then he goes into this in verse 21 of Matthew chapter seven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that they're actually calling him God, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What is the will in this context of our Father? It's to believe the gospel, to trust in Christ. He says, on that day, the day of judgment, and here's this word, many. Remember, there's a wide road and many are on it. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name. Do many miracles in your name. And God, look at all the good things we have accomplished and religious things that we have done. And then verse 23, I think it's some of the toughest words of Jesus in all the Bible. Then I will announce to them, not just tell them, announce, I never knew you. And then he says, depart from me, you lawbreakers. Lawbreakers, they just told them all the wonderful things that they had done all the religious actions that they had accomplished in their life, and he tells them, I never knew you, you're a lawbreaker away from me. Could it be that the greatest example of a wide and narrow road are people who think they're on the narrow road, but are actually on the wide road? I refer to this mission field as unsaved Christians. I know that sounds strange, But an unsaved Christian is someone, if you ask them, are you a Christian? They would say, yes, of course I'm a Christian. How could you even suggest otherwise? I'm I'm sorry, man. I just just want to have a conversation. Like, are are you a Christian? Are you a believer in Jesus? You know, are you a believer in Jesus? Or or do you follow God? Or tell me about this. Well, of course I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I'm a good person. I go to Brook Hills sometimes, except on Time Change Sunday. It's a little much. My Nana, let me talk about my Nana. She's the best Christian I've ever met in my entire life. I listen to Christian radio sometimes. It inspires me. I kind of like the Way FM, Joy FM, kind of K-Love sort of stuff. Of course I'm a Christian. Notice what I did not mention in my answer to why I was a Christian. I didn't mention Jesus one time. Did you know in the southern part of the United States, which I love and thank God for and want to live here for the rest of my life, you can say, yes, I'm a Christian, and your answer have nothing to do with Jesus. My friends, is that a saving faith? I would say no. And to me, that is the modern working out of Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23. Lord, Lord, weren't we good people? We weren't atheists. Didn't we have a church we claimed? Didn't we listen to Christian music? Didn't we pray before dinner? God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Thank you, Lord, for our daily bread. Didn't we say the Lord's Prayer before our high school football game in the huddle? And none of those are bad things. But none of those make us right with God. Because we must first realize that we have sinned against God and God will not let sin go unpunished. But our merciful God, that same holy God, has given us Jesus to be punished in our place, to die a death that we deserved, and rose from the grave three days later. Our answer to why we are Christian must be the name of Jesus, or we might not be Christians. My hope is that we will reach a community to be Christians by conviction, rather than Christians by culture. So I wanna spend some time talking about this morning our barriers in our current cultural context in 2022. And be not mistaken, I know there's atheists and agnostics everywhere, I know it's rising in America. I know there's people of other religious faiths that are in Birmingham, especially maybe college campuses, but I would take a guess that the majority of the people you know in your neighborhood and at your work and at your Chick-fil-A and at your Starbucks and on your baseball team 
and in your middle school would claim to be Christians. And again, I'm not the judge of who's a Christian, you're not either, but we have to make sure we're clear on what the Bible says actually makes one a born again believer, not in something called Christianity, but actually in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I wanna work through this morning is to help us understand this mission field. If you're going on a mission trip tomorrow overseas, if you're a responsible you know, missionary, I would hope you'd spend some time learning more about the beliefs of that culture. You might go, we live here, well what's that mean? But do we really understand? So I think for far too long we've seen cultural Christianity, unsaved Christianity, as a discipleship issue. Meaning, hey, they just gotta get more serious about their faith, they just gotta get back to church, read their Bible more, and maybe move Christian radio to one on the dial instead of four, you know, seek ye first, you know, that, that kind of thing. When the reality is, I'm convinced as I read Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and I remember my own story, which I'll tell you in just a few minutes, that cultural Christianity is not a discipleship issue. It is an evangelism issue. These people know faith generically, and they know church, but they don't actually know Jesus. So rather than be judgmental, we wanna be urgent, and we wanna understand so we can reach these people for Jesus Christ. Because a lot of times when we think, I'm not around very many unbelievers, I feel like I don't get out enough, I'm too much of a Christian bubble, and that might be true of you, but oftentimes the reason we think that is that we don't realize a lot of these people right in front of us in our context actually are cultural Christians, and they're just as lost and in need of Jesus as an atheist, an agnostic, a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist, whoever it may be. It just looks different. So there's some barriers some roadblocks on to get on that narrow road. And I want to tell you about those this morning. The first one is belief. Now that probably sounds strange. Belief's a wonderful thing. Belief is a gift of God. The fact that we can even believe in God is an act of grace. It's amazing that God would allow sinners like us to trust him and believe in him and have faith in him. But notice what they say in verse 21. Lord, Lord. Notice what they say in verse 22. Lord, Lord, these are not atheists. These are not agnostics. These would have been Jewish believers, but in, uh, in God, theists, but in our culture, what we have are people who certainly believe in God, but the question we have to ask that gets a little dicey, I'll admit, and gets a little tense, is is that the God of the Bible? Oftentimes the God that your friends and family might believe in is just kind of a generic, vague God. Lowercase g, kind of a big man upstairs, divine Santa, grandfatherly figure, maybe Yoda type from Star Wars, maybe a good luck charm, maybe he just kind of takes the wheel with Carrie Underwood when things go bad, you know, like, like, like that, that kind of thing. And you might go, well, who are you to, to say who believes in God and doesn't if they claim belief? And that's a fair question, but here's the issue. Our God is not vague. And he is not generic. He has defined himself for us in the scriptures. It's been said before, the most important question we can ask is not, is there a God? It's not atheism, there is no God, versus theism, there is a God. The most important question we can ask rather than is there a God is if there is a God, has he actually spoken? Because if he has spoken, then we must pay very careful attention to what it is that he has to say. If he hasn't spoken, then we're not accountable to very much. But we're told in the book of Hebrews that in the past, God spoke a certain way through the prophets and through the law. And today, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. The book of James, chapter two, James says, okay, you believe in God? Okay, great. So do the demons. If anyone knows there's a God, it's the devil. 
If anyone knows about Good Friday and Easter Sunday, it's the devil. And James is being a little snarky there. He's kind of like, okay, you believe in God? Okay, want a cookie? Congratulations. Our belief in God must be ultimately understood in the fact that in the past he spoke to us by the law and the prophets, but today he has spoken to us by his son. That our belief in God should first and foremost be the God of the scriptures, and then that belief in him will lead us to see our need before him to be forgiven of our sins, that we have violated his law, and then also we'll see our gracious and compassionate God and what he has done for us in Christ, and that belief in God should not just be sort of a checklist on a survey where you fill out a piece of paper and you're just like, and they ask you to indicate your height and your weight, your birthday, hometown, emergency contact, and it says religion. And you're like, okay, religion. Um, okay, I'm not nothing, so I'll move past that box. Um, I know for a fact I'm not Muslim. I know for a fact I'm not Hindu. Um, okay, uh, Christian. It's just like a random category rather than an actual conviction. And that flows from a very generic, small view of a lowercase g God. Believe it or not, something as beautiful as a belief can be a barrier to actually reaching somebody for Jesus where we live. As opposed to out in other very secular areas where there's a clear starting point. And that starting point's just unbelief. So you know where to work from. Here, you're talking to somebody who thinks they're okay simply because they are spiritual or have faith or aren't atheists. Let us understand clearly in our mission field that belief is a barrier on the narrow road. The next one is another great word, and it's morals. Morals are also a gift from God. It's good to have morals. Again, none of these are actually bad things. It's when these things become saving things that it becomes the problem. Look at their moral religion here. He says, Lord, didn't we, is what they're appealing to him for. Didn't we drive out demons? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we do those things? And that's what happens in cultural Christianity. Because rather than saying, didn't he do these things for me? And upholding the good news of the gospel, didn't he die for me? Didn't he accomplish this for me? Something else goes, didn't we? Didn't I do these things? I believe the most popular religious belief in America, and I have no data to back this up, so those of you who are into statistics and data, I apologize for a minute. Everyone who like, works at a university just cringed. But I have no data to back this up, but it's more of a field test of being a pastor for a long time and just being in the South. And not just in the South, in other places across the country, and that belief is that good people go to heaven. They don't tell you what is heaven, who's in charge, what's the point, why do you even want to go there? Like, what's it really about? All we know is that at every funeral we've ever been to that we are told that we're just so thankful that Uncle Jimmy is fishing in the big bass lake in the sky. Or things a little more, you know, sentimental, like we're just so thankful that grandma and grandpa are reunited again. She missed him so much, we're told. Oh, I bet right now I could hear Uncle Bill scream from here when Bama scored that touchdown. All of heaven just woke up. David was playing his harp, looked over and said, what's going on over there? You know, that, that, that type of thing. I just know right now he's fishing and he's playing those 18 holes and he's taking a walk around the block. And why do they believe that? It's real simple. Because Uncle Bill was a great guy and was a good person. And here is what makes this complicated. Almost anyone you ask if you ask them if how they feel about themselves morally, 
they will say they're a good person. Like everyone believes themselves to be a good person and here's the catch, they're right. They are really good people by the standards of this world. But God does not judge us and compare us to other people. Because as long as you sort of keep up with morality in suburban Alabama, whatever that looks like in 2022, you can feel like you're a pretty good person, right? Or if that doesn't work out too well, you can hopefully always find someone a little worse than you, right? Like a little worse than you? But the issue again is that God does not judge us by someone else. God's standard is himself. And he is holy and he is perfect. So of course when I judge myself or evaluate myself by just morality in Birmingham in 2022, I can feel like I'm a good person and I'm right. But when I compare myself to God, I fall short every single time. Luke chapter 18. This is Jesus talking. And he says this in verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the point here. This is the big idea. And look down on everyone else, which would be kind of a logical conclusion that you would think that you're good and people who are bad are bad. And he tells us this story. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. So they're going to the right location to participate in religious activities. One, a Pharisee, who was the religious of the religious at that time. I mean, this was the person, this is like varsity level, five-star religious person. I call it the Tom Brady of religious people. I mean, elite level religion, and the other, a tax collector. This is not someone who worked for the IRS or was voted in as the city or county tax collector where it's just their job to do today. This was different back then in this context. Think kind of a reverse Robin Hood. Rather than rob the rich and give to the poor, the tax collectors would prey on the poor. They would overcharge them the amount needed because they couldn't say no, they'd be jailed or they'd be killed, and they'd pocket the money for themselves. I mean, think about that. Stealing from the poor, I mean, even today we would go, that's terrible. And a lot of them were actually Jewish people who had sold out on their own and given their time to Rome to be tax collectors. So varsity level religion, and what was viewed as the sinners of the sinners at that time, both of them are going to the temple to pray. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Did a big generic comparison to the rest of the community. God, I thank you that I'm better than them. Then he gives his resume. He says, or gives their resume, he says, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, I'm none of those things. And I'll get real specific, because you can always find someone worse than you. Or even like this tax collector right here. You know I'm not as bad as him. He says, look at what I do. Remember Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, perform miracles in your name, drive out demons in your name? Look at this. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. God, look at the things that I have done. I'm a moral person and I thank you that you and I are great because of all the things that I'm doing that are good and religious and right. And then we see a strong contrast to that word but in verse 13. And the word but, B-U-T, is often very important in the Bible. We see things like in John 10, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. You were dead in your sins, Ephesians 2, but you're made alive in Christ. He says this, but the tax collector, 
standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, as in, God, everything the Pharisees said about me is true. So I'm not gonna try to impress you. I'm not gonna hold up my religious resume. I'm not even gonna play the don't judge me and you're being this and that card. I'm gonna do the only thing I can think of because I've run out of all other options. I'm gonna ask you for mercy on a sinner like me. And here's what's amazing we see in the next verse. God heard his prayer and answered it. I tell you, This one went down to his house justified, forgiven, declared not guilty rather than the other. This one, not that one. The one who just stood up and said, God, I'm not like other people, thank you, and here's the things that I've done. Remember in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, and I'll tell them, away from me, I never knew you, you lawbreakers. Here it's happening again. Because the one who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, what a story. I did a funeral a few years ago for a 19-year-old boy, so you can imagine how terrible that was. And he died in a boating accident, 19, which is awful. Thankfully, Christian family, and he himself was also a believer in Jesus Christ, follower of Christ. And as is customary for a pastor, uh, they're in a funeral, but that kind of that week before you sit down with the family and just sort of be with them, and also help them plan out the service. They're grieving, it's hard for them to process. So you just kind of walk through the service with them, ask them what they want it to be like, to pay tribute to their loved one. And the family was really clear. They had a plan. They wanted like four of his friends and people from his life to share stories and kind of a testimonial about his life, like a brother, roommate, you know, coworker, good friend, that kind of thing. Just, and it was just very, very normal and customary for a funeral. And they said, we want to make sure you come up at the end and that you're just really clear about Jesus, about people in the room's need for Jesus Christ. And I said, you got it. That's all I know. You know, I'm a one-trick pony, and that's all I got. And... The four friends, they were in chairs up here and they came up one after the other and did a beautiful job. And you know, his name was Heath and they say Heath was just the best friend and the best roommate and you know, lit up a room and he always made us all laugh and I'd trust him with anything and just, just, just really great things about his life. And then it was my turn. And I came up and I said, first of all, before I begin, I'd like to thank the four of you for just the really awesome testimonials you gave about Heath's life. I thought it was beautiful and it was a great tribute to your friend and to your brother. I said, I also want you to know that everything they said about Heath is 100% true. But not one of those things is why he is in heaven today. He is in heaven today because Jesus Christ died for his sins and he believed that in faith and repentance. What a wide open mission field. It doesn't take a funeral to get there are people who just simply think they're good and they're fine and as a result they're going to some random place called heaven and I think the way we have to have that conversation is by what I call change the comparison game. Rather than comparing yourself to others, compare yourself to God. Because notice the tax collector here, he wasn't trying to measure up to the Pharisee. Instead he just realized that he stood before God a guilty sinner and here was God offering grace. In the book of Galatians it says that if righteousness can be attained by keeping the law, then Jesus died for nothing. Doesn't that sound blasphemous to even say that out loud that Jesus died for nothing? 
It just, it just feels weird saying that. It's biblical words, Galatians chapter two. If someone believes that their good deeds and their good works and their generic beliefs and their religion gets them to heaven when they die, without even realizing it, they're walking around holding a huge flashing neon figurative sign that says that Jesus died for nothing. We have to make sure people are clear. I mean, think about that. If the Pharisee was right and that he and God were fine, if those in Matthew 7 who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things and we're great too, like, like if they're right, then the whole rest of the scriptures don't make sense. Like take the manger scene off your mantle. Who cares at Christmas time? Who cares? Return that lily dress before Easter and cancel ham at Nana's. What are we celebrating and why does it matter? Actually, we have everything to celebrate. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us and in him might become the righteousness of God in him. That he came to seek and save those not who are performing wonderfully, but who are lost. The third thing is heritage. Again, another wonderful thing. Can the faith be passed down? Absolutely. As my grandpa used to say, you bet your sweet potatoes. Can faith be inherited? Absolutely not. You must have a faith of your own. How many people is there reason for thinking they're a Christian because they come from a Christian family? It's like, you know, we're the Thompson family. Of course we're Christians. You know my Nana, she taught Sunday school at the First Baptist Church for, you know, 50 years. That's great. And praise God for godly Nanas. And praise the Lord for Christian heritage. But how many people think they're fine because they see their faith as more of like an ethnicity or something? rather than actually something by conviction. I learned about this from my grandfather without him even realizing it. I come from a very uh, generational, cultural Catholic family, Italian Catholic family. And my grandpa died about 10 years ago. He was a World War II vet, uh, greatest generation, died at 89 years old, just awesome man, had a tremendous amount of respect for him, uh, just great relationship with him. And I'm an adult by now, I'm already pastoring by now, and we're watching football at my parents' house, wanted to spend time with them on a Saturday afternoon. And he just randomly asked me a question. He's like, he used to call me Dino. He said, Dino, I have a question. I said, what's up, Pops? So I call him Pops. He said, why? He asked me, why aren't you Catholic? And I was like, oh boy. I don't want to get into a Reformation lecture with my 89-year-old grandfather here. But, so I just kind of, I just, as respectfully as I could, I just kind of answered why. And there are real reasons why in terms of why I believe about grace and believe about the authority of the scriptures and the church and, and just all those things and about how one is saved and just kind of walked him through that as best as I could. And he goes, well, I just don't understand. He goes, your dad's Catholic. I was like, Pops, no, he's not. Yes, he is. He's a deacon at our church. I hope he's not. That'd be kind of a thing. It'd be sort of a thing. He goes, well, no, he, he's Catholic. I'm like, Pops, he's in the next room. You can go ask him. He's like, oh, well, okay, fine. Well, your Uncle Tim, his oldest son, my dad's older brother, he's like, he's a Catholic. I said, Pops, he's an atheist. And he's like mad about it. He's like a Darwin fish on his car. Like he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't like that he just doesn't believe in God. He like doesn't believe in God and like is mad. Like has Richard Dawkins books and Christopher Hitchin books. Like, like he makes fun of Christianity. He's like, well, he's Catholic. I was like, you want to call him? He'll tell you he's not. Well, your Uncle Ted, my dad's younger brother, my grandpa's youngest son, he's Catholic. I was like, Pops, he's nothing. Because he's nothing. And he's like, don't worry, be happy kind of guy. Like he's just, he's just nothing. Well, well, I just don't understand. 
And the conversation went about as circular and frustrating as it sounds. But I learned something that day. For my grandfather, being Catholic was more important than believing Catholic. Being Catholic was more important than believing Catholic, where he would insist his atheist son is Catholic. And this is not me picking on Catholics. For how many evangelical Christians today, is, or, or that come from evangelical families, is being Christian more important than believing Christian? How many people, and it really is sad, insist their adult son or daughter are Christians? Because when they were six years old, they said a prayer and they haven't followed Jesus ever in adult life and don't care to in any way, shape, or form. And rather than helping them understand the gospel and reach them for Christ, they insist they're fine because they treat it more like a superstition or some magic words you say rather than an actual belief in the gospel. Don't get me wrong, I believe in eternal security. I believe that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it in Christ. I believe that if we could lose our salvation, we all would have by now. But how often are we more convinced, or more committed, I should say, to convincing someone they are saved rather than actually making sure they are? Convincing someone they are saved rather than actually making sure they are. And that's biblical. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, to examine yourselves, to see if you're in the faith. If anyone could have played the heritage card, it was James, the same guy that said, you believe in God, okay, great. So does the devil. He was the brother, the actual half-brother of Jesus. Could you imagine being Jesus' brother? I know, Mom, he always makes his bed, right? Maybe imagine that. Let me guess, another A on your test. You know, just imagine being, imagine being, that guy's like a middle child counseling for the rest of his life, right? And we're told in the scriptures that his own brothers even mocked him and didn't believe in him. I mean, think about it for a minute. It would be pretty far-fetched. Even if your brother never did anything wrong and you knew he didn't, be pretty far-fetched to believe your brother is the long-promised Messiah for generations and generations. But something happened to James. And we're told that he died a martyr's death while he was pastoring the church in Jerusalem. He saw his brother die and saw him come back to life three days later and said, he is worthy of my life. He's not just my brother. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm not the most intelligent person in this room, I promise you. My math class, my senior year of high school was called math. I don't appreciate that. But I'm gonna go with the one who died and came back to life three days later, any day of the week. But how about a Christianity it doesn't even depend on the resurrection because it's not important for them to remain Christians. I mean, think about this. In the South, I'm not being extreme here, in the South right now, you can claim to be a Christian and the cross and the resurrection could have never taken place and it wouldn't change your faith very much. So what would it look like if we saw where we live as a mission field and had compassion on those who were lost and we didn't just define being lost as someone being an atheist or agnostic or of another world religion, but as someone who thinks they're a Christian and their reason for believing themselves to be a Christian has nothing to actually do with Jesus. It's about generic belief, what they're not more than what they are. I'm not an atheist, I'm not an agnostic. Or it has to do with 
their morals. I'm a good person, we're good people. And their heritage, they come from this Christian family. And the last thing I would say is ignorance. This is the last barrier, and that's my story. I went to church every single Sunday unless we were sick or out of town. And the church I went to had really nice people, treated me very well. But I grew up in the kind of mainline Protestant church where I never heard the gospel. Yeah, they talked about Jesus, but it was kind of be like Jesus, love like Jesus, be inspired by Jesus, be a good person, love others. If you have a bad day, read these verses, that type of thing. If you'd asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said, absolutely. Why are you a Christian? Well, I'm a good person. I believe in God. I'm not an atheist, an agnostic, or any other religion. And I come from a Christian family. We're the Insera family. Like, we're Christians. We pray before dinner. Celebrate Christmas. Celebrate Easter. My mom makes me dress nicer on that day for church. You know, the, the, the whole deal. I went to an FCA, Fellowship Christian Athletes Retreat, when I was 13 years old. And I went because two things. One, I was a Christian. Why? Because I'm not an atheist. I'm a good person, and I come from a Christian family. And I was an athlete. Hard to believe now I know, but I was, promise. And at that, they had a worship service at night. They had a kind of like sports stuff during the day and worship service at night, and they had a speaker come in. And my only context for any kind of Christian gathering was my little mainline Protestant church in my neighborhood. And in that sermon, he actually talked about the need to trust in Jesus for your salvation. And, I'm, and then he gave this, this thing called an invitation. I had never seen anything like that. I didn't know it was even going on. An invitation where folks would come forward and one of the coaches would be up there to talk with you about becoming a believer. And I'm just going, what is happening here right now? And then he says something that I'll never forget. All these years later, I was 13. He said, there's some of you who think you're a Christian simply because you know a few stories in the Bible and every now and then before a game, you pray with your team. You need to know that you yourself must be born again by giving your life yourself to Jesus Christ and believing that you need him. You depend on him for your salvation, that you have sinned against God and God's either gonna judge you by your sins or he's gonna judge you based on the record of Jesus Christ who never, he explained the good news of the gospel to me. The good news that Jesus came to die for sinners in our place. He didn't just randomly die on the cross. He died instead of us in our place. I couldn't believe it. And they gave this invitation and I went forward and I said, I'm not really sure what's going on. I grabbed the coach and it's a gym setting so we kind of sat it up against the wall on the floor and he explained to me, I said, I don't even know what I'm doing but what he talked about, that's me. And he sat down for probably 15 minutes and just walked me through what it meant to be a Christian and trust in Jesus. So I came home, this is the ignorance concept, I came home and I was overzealous, I was 13, I like busted through the door and my dad's like, hey, welcome back. And I'm like, our church stinks, you know, and, and he's like, whoa, whoa. He like, they thought I joined a cult. Because here's the deal, cultural Christians, thankfully my whole family has come to Christ since then, but cultural Christians think the only difference between them and an actual Christian is they're just really into their religion. Like, we're Christians too, but like, they're just like really into it. It's like the guy who gets asked to pray at Thanksgiving. It's like he says good prayers, right? It's like, that's really how they see the difference. Let's show them the difference. And it ain't about the prayers we pray out loud. It's about the Savior we believe in and follow. So if your answer to why you are a Christian and what makes you a Christian is something other than the name of Jesus Christ, I'm not here to scare you. I'm not here to doubt your salvation. I'm just suggesting that you might not be one. 
because Jesus himself said, I never knew you. I never knew you. How do we know Christ? We know him through his death and his resurrection. He ascended to heaven and one day is coming back to make all things new and to claim his church once and for all. And they won't be people who measured up to the culture around them morally or had a generic belief or simply came from a family that wasn't atheistic. It'll be the people who've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And that's never going to happen in this community unless people actually see their need for it. Have you noticed that most evangelism strategies we use today, especially in our faith tradition, are usually in materials out there or designed for skeptics who are strangers that we don't know? They're designed for like doubters, a secular crowd, atheistic crowd. I thank God for that. We need to have that kind of curriculum, that kind of training. But for most of us, that's not our context. It's people we already know who think they're fine and they're not. So we're not saying be more like us, be a version of us in Christianity. No, no. We are saying it's Jesus. Like he is what the faith is about. Like our faith has an object and it's a person and his name is Jesus Christ. So I would just ask you to open your eyes to the mission field around you that is unsaved Christianity, that the fields of Birmingham and all the surrounding areas are very ripe for harvest. And Jesus in Luke 10 said we should pray for workers of the harvest to be sent. So let's be that together. And I'm gonna try to do the same thing for the church I lead back home in Tallahassee. Again, of course there's exceptions. Of course there's people who move here from all across the country that weren't raised in the South, and weren't raised in the Bible. Of course, of course, of course. All the disclaimers, all the things. But for most of us, the mission field that we don't even realize sometimes we have is sitting right in front of us. And it's people in Matthew chapter seven. And it's the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. A lot of us just think Pharisees are legalistic and that's all we think about when we think of Pharisees. And that's part of it. But when you think of a Pharisee, just think of someone who trusts in themselves that they are righteous. In other words, they think they're great people and they're religious, therefore they're fine. Let's make sure that we're intentional and we're clear on the fact that Christianity is about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again.